Hey, welcome to ACF Church, and we're so glad that you're with us watching this message online. And our hope is that it would encourage you to be more like Jesus and walk closely with Him as an apprentice of Christ. And our hope is to give away all of these resources for free as much as possible. It takes a lot of time and energy and people to make that happen. And if you'd like to support the mission of God financially for ACF Church, you can go to acfak.org and you can give there. Now enjoy the Word of God proclaimed. Oppressed and enslaved in the land of Egypt for hundreds of years, the people of Israel cried out to God for help. Seeing the affliction of his people, God began his redemptive plan to one day lead them out of slavery and into the promised land. So God appeared to Moses saying, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Pharaoh would not let the people go, though plague after plague served as a sign to him of God's power and sovereignty. Not until the tenth and final plague Pharaoh finally moved to send the people of God away. So they left the land of Egypt and crossed through the Red Sea, passing from slavery to freedom. Welcome, ACF. Thank you guys for being here today. I'm excited to be with you guys. If you're online with us right now, we are so glad that you guys are here. I know we have our outposts going. Our home church is happening right now. So thank you guys. There's people watching online just wherever you're at. We want to say thanks for being here. Welcome back. If you've been here before, welcome back to church today, you guys. If it's your first time here, we just want to say we're glad you're here with us. Um, Man, we hope that you can come and experience just the, the community of God today and just feel loved wherever you're at and right where you're at. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited. This is the first time I've gotten to preach like with people in the room. This is my first time, and so I'm very excited. I was super amped up at first service. I was like, okay, calm down, calm down. Let's get into stride here and uh, have some fun today. Before I continue on, before we get into today's message, I want to talk to you guys about something really quick that I think is really awesome that we're doing here at ACF Church. For a little over a year now, we've been doing something called Text Devos, uh, where we've been texting your phones in the morning if you sign up for it, and there's a link that kind of uh, has a little devotional or a video that goes with it. Well, we have like really upped our game. Our team is amazing, and they have taken this Text Devo thing to a whole new level, and every single day... 365 days out of the year, you are able to get a devotional text to your phone. It's written. It's all, there's also a video that goes to it. There's a prayer that goes along with it. So I've just talked to so many people that are like, I don't know how to get into a rhythm of like doing devotionals every day. We want to send it to you. It comes at 7 a.m. every morning. And I love it. I'll talk to people because they'll be like, I get the ding on my phone. I'm like, oh, it's my alarm. It's the ACS devotional. I get up and I can do my devos. I was talking to someone the other day that he's like, I'm at the gym and all of a sudden I'm in the middle of my workout and ding, it goes off and I stop what I'm doing and I sit down and I kind of focus my mind and take some time and do Devo. So I want to invite you guys all right now, if you're not getting our text Devos, you should be. And this is really easy how to do. Just text the word Devo to 907-694-7741. If you're watching online right now, stop what you're doing. Pause it, whatever you need to do, text in the word Devo and start getting our ACF devotionals. They're from our team. Uh, they're from you guys. There's people who are just, you know, awesome people who come to ACF who are helping us out with this. But they're, they're awesome. You don't want to miss out on them. So let this be a part of your rhythm of us doing devotionals together. 
Um, we are in a series called uh, Into the Wilderness. Like we're going into the wild. And uh, we're doing a reading plan, and what we're doing is we're in the book of Exodus, and we're going uh, through the first half of the book of Exodus, and what we're doing is we're going from, from Christmas to Easter through Exodus. And uh, we've been doing this, and we, we did a reading plan, and so if you guys haven't gotten that reading plan, make sure you pick one up. You can get one out in the lobby. You can download them online from our website, but make sure you guys get the reading plan. And it's real simple. If you haven't started yet, it's okay. We're only in chapter three. It will take you like 15 minutes to get caught up. Super simple. Read it. Get in and start reading along. It's just a little bit of reading every day as we're walking through the first 12 books of Exodus. So today we are in chapter 3. Now if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, I want to do a real quick catch you up overview. So the, the people of God are known as the children of Israel. They have become enslaved by Egypt. Um, they, they moved to Egypt to escape a famine, and hundreds of years have, have gone by, and, and they're exploding in their population, and no one really remembers why they're there. It says that they forgot, the, the Egyptians forgot why they came in the first place, and they get afraid of them because there's so many of them, they're afraid they're going to uprise and take over Egypt, even though there's no evidence of that. That was just a fear of the Pharaoh, so they decided to enslave them. And to help with population control, the Pharaoh decided that uh, every baby boy born needed to be killed. And this is how we're going to slow the, the, these Hebrews, is what the Egyptians call them, slow these Hebrews down from overpopulating our land, is we're going to kill all the baby boys. Well, there was a mother, and she had a baby boy, and she loved her baby boy, and so she decided to try to save his life by making this basket and putting him in the basket and putting that basket in the river and sending it down river. I mean, that sounds like you're killing your child, right? But uh, it was saving your child. It clearly wasn't like the Copper River. She's wee down the river. (laughs) But this baby ends up in the presence of the Pharaoh's daughter. And the Pharaoh's daughter takes the baby and keeps it as her own. And she names him Moses because he was taken out of the water. That's what the name Moses means. And Moses grows up for over the next 40 years now as an Egyptian in the palace Right as royalty in the Egyptian palace as an Egyptian. Now, he's not Egyptian, he's Hebrew. And, and this comes into play in, in Exodus chapter 2. Because it's 40 years later, Moses, he's out and about. He, I don't know what he's doing, but he's out and about, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he decides, I'm going to step in and I'm going to help. And he comes in and he ends up killing the Egyptian and, and hiding the Egyptian's body in the sand. And Moses is probably thinking like, hey, children of Israel, hey, Hebrews, like, yeah, I'm your guy. I'm your guy, right? Like, I stepped in, I saved the day, you're welcome. And uh, what ends up happening, though, is the next day, there's like some Hebrew on Hebrew crime going on. And there's two, two Hebrews going at it, and Moses steps in the middle and is like, what are you guys doing? You guys need to knock it off. And they look at him, and they're like, whoa, what are you going to do, kill us too? And all of a sudden, he's like, uh-oh, they... They don't, they don't, they're not happy that I killed the Egyptian. Well, this isn't good because the Egyptians are going to be ticked off if they find out. In fact, the Pharaoh will have me killed if he finds out I killed an Egyptian. And the Hebrews aren't in love with me either, so I'm out. And he, he, he runs away. He goes out into the wilderness and, and, and escapes maybe being killed by, by the Pharaoh. And, and he just disappears for 40 years. 40 years disappears. Starts a whole new life over again. I kind of imagine it's probably a lot like what people do moving up to Alaska. Like, I'm just going to go and disappear. Start a new life. Hope you're not in the witness protection program. If I just blew your cover right now, sorry. But that's where we pick up in chapter 3. 
So chapter 3, verse 1 If you're reading along, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. If you have your phones and you have your Bible app on your phone, you can open that up. ACF Church app, we have a Bible on there, you can open that up. But here we go, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of, <clears throat> out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So up until this point, God has been silent for probably a few hundred years. In fact, the, the, the children of Israel, they had only heard the stories of their great great-grandparents, right? There was no written history going around. There was only oral stories of like, oh man, our, our great-great-grandfather Abraham, he was faithful to God, and his son Isaac was faithful. There was just stories going on. But, but this is the first time God steps back into the scene. In fact, an interesting thing to note here is honestly and probably Uh, Moses and even the children of Israel, see, they were living in a polytheistic world. And what that means is that there were many gods that people worshipped. The Egyptians served many gods, right? They had the god of the sun, the god of the sea, the god of the crops, all these gods that they worshipped. And the neighboring surrounding uh, communities, the neighboring surrounding nations, they were all polytheistic. They all had many, many gods that they served. And so the odds are, and the truth is, Honestly, that Moses probably was a polytheistic person in his sense of deities. Like he probably served or worshipped many different gods. The, the children of Israel being in, integrated into Egypt were probably serving and worshipping the Egyptian gods. And, and they had their stories of before. And you know, one of these is the real God, but we're not really sure. See, God's been silent. Now he steps back into the story. Now he steps back into the scene. It's, it's why God introduces himself the way he introduces himself. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God you're talking to. Not the sun God, not the God of the sea, not the God of the crops and the fields. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even on a, on a side note to that, what he's also doing is he's confirming to Moses who he is. Because remember, Moses grew up as an Egyptian, but then he was, knew that he was Hebrew. He was rejected by the Hebrews, rejected by the Egyptians. And so Moses is like, ah, I'm out. And so he's reminding Moses who he is as well, this part of the story. Let's continue on with the reading, starting in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up uh, out of the land into a good and broad land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression for which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and ask them, or I'm sorry, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is an incredible moment in history that we see. This interaction between God and Moses. And it continues on, but we're going to stop right here. I love the question that Moses asks God. He says, if I go to the people and I say to them, who sent me, what shall I tell them? In other words, what Moses is is asking is he's asking this question, who is God? If they come to me and, and they say, well, who sent you? What they're really asking us is, well, who is God? Remember, they're, they're in this polytheistic culture. And so, well, what God sent you? Who sent you? Who, who is God? And, and God has this interaction with Moses. He says to them, he says to him, I am who I am. Have you ever asked that question? Who is God? It's a really important question to ask. Who is God? And let me rephrase my question. I'm not asking, have you ever Ask this question, who is God? The reality is, all of us have asked this question, who is God? We've all done it. We've all asked the question, who is God? We may have not understood that we were asking this question. We may not realize that we're asking this question, but we've all asked this question before, who is God? And that is what Moses is asking to this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. He's saying, this all sounds great, but who is God? And when we ask that question, we, we really should have an answer for this. And this is why Moses is asking God. But we ask this question all the time. Who is God? When you read the word, and and, and maybe it doesn't make sense to you, we ask the question, who is God? When we don't like what the Bible says about who God is or who you are, we ask the question, who is God? When, When your family or your friends come to you with hard questions, how do you answer the question, who is God? Right? Like, when, when life doesn't go your way, how do you answer the question, who is God? When you pray that you get the job and you don't get the job, how do you answer the question, who is God? When you ask for healing and it, it doesn't come, how do you answer the question, who is God? When you get the test results back and it's positive or it's negative, how do you answer the question, who is God? When the rent's due and you don't have the money, How do you answer the question, who is God? When the relationship fails, how do you answer the question, who is God? See, we ask that question all the time. We ask that question all the time. Who is God? Even if you don't believe in him, even if you say God doesn't exist, that's still a statement of who God is, right? Like you're you're still making a statement of who God is by saying that he doesn't exist. But all the time in life, we ask these questions, who is God? It is a very important question that 
we have to be able to answer. And fortunately, we really don't have to answer it because God answers it for us right here in this passage. And I want to look at two things, two realities that God teaches Moses about himself that have a ma- major impacts on us today, major impl- implications on us today. The first truth that God reveals to us is this, that he sees his people. Okay, God sees his people. This is what he tells Moses. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. God sees his people. He sees you right where you're at. This is an astounding truth about God, that he is with the people in their sufferings. Egypt had been, or I'm sorry, Israel had been suffering for so long, thinking that they were alone, thinking that God had forgotten about them. But the reality is, is that God was right there with them the entire time. He is with his people in their sufferings. He's a personal God. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not true. Right? It's like my son, Elias, he's six years old. He's so scared to go downstairs to his bedroom by himself, right? And so every day it's this battle of, okay, Elias, he comes up for breakfast. Now go get dressed. Well, I'm scared. All right, I'll come down there with you. And I go downstairs and I stand in the doorway and inevitably I kind of slide out of the doorway so he can't see me. He's getting dressed and he turns around and I'm not there. He starts freaking out. Dad, dad, where you at? Dad, dad, where are you? Right? And and he gets freaked out, and I do this to him all the time. It's great. I'm a great dad, terrifying my son, playing head games with him. All of a sudden, he's in his room, and he thinks he's by himself, and and his fears come to life, right? The things that he's afraid, I don't know what he's afraid of downstairs, but he's afraid of something, and it becomes reality. It surrounds him. And even though he doesn't think I'm with him, I'm right there with him. I am right there. I have not left him. I am, I am in arms like I could touch him. I'm just behind the door. And yet, in his mind, he's been left alone. See, God is a God who is with his people. Whether you believe it or not, whether Elias believes it or not, I am with him. That's the reality. That's the truth. And so, the first thing that God shows us is that he is with his people. The second truth that God reveals about himself is that he is. I didn't know how else to fill fill this out. I didn't know how to finish this, right? I started typing things out. I'm like, he is awesome. He is huge. He is, he is. That's it. That's what God reveals to Moses. He is. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to them, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, what that means is there is no definition of myself outside of myself. There is nothing on heaven and earth that can describe me outside of me. I am who I am. And the, the, this phrase, I am who I am, it's, it's honestly, it's become more tradition to say in, in, in the Christian world and honestly in the Jewish world too. Um, but that's not the actual translation of how God answers this question. The, the, what, the, the more accurate translation from the ancient Hebrew into English is, I be who I be. 
I be who I be. That just sounds like so much more authority even than I am who I am. I be who I be. But if you actually take it a step further, because there's that, that's how it translates into English, actually. But if you take in, you start taking in all the, the language rules and things like that for ancient Hebrew, um, and it changes just a little bit more. What actually hit Moses' ears, what hit Moses' ears when he says, who shall I say you are, what, what he heard was, I cause to be because I cause to be. That is who is sending you. That is my name. That is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the God that is not this polytheistic environment with which God is this God, is the God of sun, God of the, God of the sea, what, what God is it? No, I cause to be because I cause to be. That is who is sending you to Pharaoh. See, God is, he is. And, and really what this means is that we don't get to define who God is. We don't get to define who God is. We do this often. We, we say things like, well, I just can't believe that about God. I just, I can't serve a God who would do that. I don't believe that God really would do this or exist in this way. No, we don't get to define God. We, we try to define him all the time, but we don't get to define God. God is. This is what he's telling Moses. Right? He tells Moses, I am a God who is with you, and I'm a God who, who, who sees his people, but I am also a God who is. You see, what God reveals to, to, to Moses is these two, two words. They're these theological terms, and we use them to describe God. And the two words are eminent and transcendent. Eminent and transcendent. And really simply put, what that means, I love the way Matt Chandler describes these two words, is that God is a God who is with us and a God who is above us. He is with us. He's imminent, but he's above us. He is transcendent. And that is what God explains to Moses in that moment. You see, God is a God who is 100% with us, but he is also 100% above us. And this is uniquely Christian. This is uniquely Christian. There is no other religion on the planet that has a God that is both above us and with us, 100% both of those. See, he's a God who's with us. He's with us, in our, our pain. he's with us in our pain. He hears our prayers and our cries. He's involved in the day-to-day of our lives. He wants us to bring our needs to him. Now, this is an example that will really resonate mostly to the parents in the room, and I, I try not to single out like one group of people typically, but parents, you get this probably better than most. Um, you have kids, makes you a parent if you didn't know, um, and if they talk, they ask questions, right? If they talk, they ask questions, um, and then they ask more questions and more questions, and you answer their questions, and they ask you the same questions, and then when you're trapped in a house with them 24-7 because of a lockdown and COVID, they're lucky to be alive. Those questions may get them killed. May get them killed. How come they, what, why they, why, how come they, and I just told you why, but I don't understand why. And lots of questions, right? And we get irritated as parents over these questions over and over again. So often that's how we view God. Too often, that's how we view God. Like, oh, I have needs, I have questions. Oh, but God, I already asked you about this, and I don't really want to annoy you some more, but I, uh, God, I'm really sorry i got to come back to you. No, he's a God who's with us. He wants you to bring 
your needs. He wants you to bring your questions, your wrestlings to him. He delights in that. And so he is not like us that we get, he gets super annoyed. No, he wants us to come to him. But he is also a God who is above us. He is undefined. He causes because he causes. He's holy. He's righteous. He chooses to do what he's going to choose to do. He will work his plan, and he will never be defeated. It's not even in the realm of possibilities of God to be defeated. He is who he is. He caused to be because he caused to be. He's both simultaneously transcendent and imminent together, fully, 100%. See, and what we need to realize is when we alter those, when we make it like, oh, he's like 50% this and 50% that, 25% eminent, 75% transcendent, or when we change that at all, it becomes really dangerous. We get a different God. We don't serve the same God. We don't follow the same God. When we change that and we make him less of one or more of the other, and, and people do that all the time. Even as Christians, we can tend to do this. We make God a transcendent God, but not an eminent God. See, and when we make God who is no longer a God with us, he becomes a God who is against us. Right? When we, when we, when we turn God into a God who is not with us, he becomes a God who is against us. And what that means is, all of a sudden, I'm trying to serve a God who's demanding all this stuff from me. you got to earn your way. you got to earn your righteousness. You better do enough good deeds more than your bad deeds if you think you're going to make it into heaven. That is a God who is above us, but who is not with us. Right? I don't know if you remember the Far Side cartoon. Everyone 28 and under has no idea what I'm talking about. But the Far Side cartoon, maybe you remember this one where there's a guy just like walking down the street, whistling, <laughs> minding his own business, and he doesn't realize he's walking underneath a piano that's being like hoisted up into a second story floor. And God is watching this unfold on his computer, and he's got his finger over a button on the computer, computer that says what? You remember? Smite. Smite. God's ready to smite this poor, innocent dude just walking down the street because he feels like it. Right? That's how we view a God who is a God not with us. That is, that is, that's the fear that we start to, to try to live life with. Is like, oh, I better do enough. I hope I did enough good deeds. Like, oh man, I gotta, there's no way I can do it. I'm just going to give up anyways. God doesn't even like me anyways. Like he, he's against me. You know, and when you have a God who's a God who is not with us, the world sees him as against them. And unfortunately, a lot of times, even as the church, we can portray a God that's against humanity. I don't know if you've ever read any of Richard Dawkins' stuff, but he's a famous scientist and writer and a very famous atheist. And he wrote a book called The God Delusion. And in that book, this is how he describes God. I'm not going to read the whole quote, but it says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist. And he goes on and on to say, uh, 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 um, malevolent bully. Like, this is the God that the world sees oftentimes, especially like coming the way we treat the world and react to them. But really, it's a God who is not a God who is with us. What Dawkins sees from the Old Testament, he doesn't see a God who's with his people and their suffering. A God who, is, who hears the cries and sets into motion and has a plan, but he's with his people. But that is the view of God. God becomes a bully if he's not a God who is with us. 
And on the flip side, when we make a God who is no longer above us, he becomes a God who can't save us. When we make God a God who is not above us, no longer above us, he becomes a God who can't save us. He becomes weak. When we define God this way, we make him a God with no convictions. We make him a God who's no longer after righteousness for us, no longer holy. He just is there to make sure we have a good day, right? Like, it's just, he's just my buddy. He just goes with me where I go, and if I get, like, depressed or things don't go my way, he's going to fix it and just make me happy, Like, that's God's goal, is to make me happy. And we start saying things, like when we believe this or we we see God in this way, we start saying things like, I'm just a really spiritual person. I'm just just super spiritual. You know, I got power of positive thinking. That's what it's about. I'm just going to work on my power of positive thinking. No, don't get me wrong. Positive thinking is a very important thing. Scripture talks about it over and over again. But when you remove a God who is above you, a God who has authority to change things and and dictate things in our lives, like that positive thinking is super weak because it's just coming from me. And I know I am not strong enough to positively think myself out of lots of situations. And so when we we become a a people who, who see God as not a God above us, we start we start seeing a really weak God. And we talk about things like, oh man, it's just all about grace. It's just all about grace, which it is all about grace. Oh, it's just, we love the forgiveness. Ah, just God can forgive me, he's gonna forgive me. And he does forgive us every time. But when he's not above us, there's no holiness attached to that. It's like, I can just do and I can live and I can just kind of have my life the way I want it. I can be me and and God will forgive me at the end of the day. I'm going to get into heaven because he's going to forgive me. And I don't have to worry about anything, the way I live, the way I treat people, the way I speak. I don't have to do any of that because God's, he's a God who's with me. He doesn't care what I do. He just sweeps all my sin under the rug anyways. And that's how we end up living and acting when we, when we see God, not as a God above us, but just a God who is with us. See, we need to see God as both. A God who is transcendent and a God who is imminent. A God who is both above us and a God who is with us. We need to understand that he does require holiness for us and righteousness for us. But the good news is he, like, he helps us out with that one, right? Like He puts that on us and yet calls us into it. And yet at the same time, he's with you in your pain and with you in your sorrow. And we have to see it as that. I love the illustration. My favorite illustration of this comes from C.S. Lewis. Many of you guys know the example I'm going to say, but in case you don't, and many of you probably watching don't, or maybe in this room you don't know this example, C.S. Lewis was, a, was an atheist, did not believe in God, brilliant man. And he comes to the saving grace, saving knowledge of Jesus, and becomes this amazing, incredible theologian. But he's also a writer, and he writes, he wrote lots and lots of books. Um, he wrote this series, he called it a children's series, I guess, but I think it's pretty cool. Um, and he writes this series, and in this series, there's a character who represents God. And this character's name is Aslan, and he's a lion. And, and these people are about to go meet Aslan, and they're like, well, well, who is he? And they're like, he's a lion. And they're like, whoa, Aslan's a lion? And ultimately they become terrified of him. And they're like, yeah, he's a lion. And, and the question comes out, well, is he good? Or I'm sorry, is he safe? Is he a safe lion? And they're like, no, he's not a safe lion. There's no such thing as a safe lion. But he's good. He's a good lion. And that is God. God is not safe. 
Not safe in the least bit. He is transcendent. He's above us. But yet God is good. And he is good to us. And he keeps his promises. And he has a plan that he's working out. And he's working it out. And he loves us in that plan and through that plan. And he's the same God as yesterday and today and forever, right? He's the God of the the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He is transcendent and imminent. And, And here's the question, though. If he's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, then what, where does Jesus fit into all of this? Where does Jesus fit into all this? If, if God is the same God that spoke out of that burning bush, he's transcendent and he's eminent, how does Jesus fit into this? See, that is a, another question that everybody has to wrestle through is what about Jesus? Every, every major religion on the planet has to answer the question, what about Jesus? And they all do in different ways. And the majority of them, if not all of them, have a, a different perspective of Jesus than, than the view of Christianity. They say, oh, he is definitely, Jesus was eminent. He was with us. Now, he wasn't God. He was maybe a prophet. He was a representation of God. And there's even debate. Did Jesus actually claim to be God? Did he actually claim to be God? Well, he said things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And people would argue, well, yeah, he's, he's, a representa- he's a representation of God. Like, he's like an ambassador. If you've seen me, you've seen my country. Like, yeah, I, you, you can know what my country's like if you see me. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you know what God's like if you see me. Well, what about I am the way, the truth, and life? No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, yeah, he's the gatekeeper, people would argue. He, 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 he's the gatekeeper. Like, you have to go through Jesus to get to God, but he doesn't claim to be God. A lot of people believe that and argue that. But then we have this conversation in John chapter 8. I love this conversation that Jesus is having with these Jewish leaders. If you've ever wondered, did Jesus ever get into like heated debates, heated arguments? This one's so good. I love this. It's John chapter 8, if you're reading along, starting in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Okay, we got to stop right there. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody and got so intense, you're like, you have a demon. That is literally the only answer to why you're acting the way you're acting right now. You clearly have a demon. These Jews, amen. Yeah, I was in that conversation in the car ride here. There's the demonic presence in my kids. They won't stop asking me questions. Now we know you have a demon. They're claiming that on Jesus. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who, makes, uh, who do you make yourself out to be? That's a great question. We need to ask Jesus. Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? They asked the right question, but they weren't ready for the answer. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I love this, I would be a liar like you. Like, Jesus is in their face. Like, oh, if I say I don't know him, I'm a liar, just like you're a liar. You liars. Like, Jesus is like, this is a heated debate that Jesus is having with these people. I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right? Like, that's what he's doing right there. It's mic drop. You see, Jesus was not saying, what he wasn't saying, what a lot of people think he was saying was, I existed before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I existed. No, he is claiming the name of God right here. Before Abraham was, I am. He speaks his name as God. And we know that to be true, and that he wasn't just trying to explain that he existed before Abraham, because the Jews right there, they tried to kill him immediately on the spot. They tried to kill him. And Jesus eludes them because it wasn't time for him yet. Jesus makes the God claim that he is God. In fact, in fact, it was really cool, just this, this connection piece between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the I am and Jesus. As I was studying for uh, today to speak, I was reading some commentary, and it was arguing that they believe that when Moses is talking to the burning bush, that it's actually Jesus he's talking to. Because when he says, who is it that sent me? What is, their, what is his name? And he says, I am. And then later on, Jesus claims, I am. That it wasn't Jesus the, the man, the human, but it was God the Son speaking to Moses. That it ties all the way back that Jesus was there from the beginning. That before Abraham was, I am. And then all of a sudden, if that's true, then when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that we know what God is like. And that means that Jesus himself is both transcendent and imminent. He is with us, but he is definitely also above us. So what does that look like? How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the Jesus who is with us, but also above us? What does that mean for us? I love the story in the New Testament, uh, in, in the Gospels, the story of Zacchaeus. I'm going to kind of wrap up with Zacchaeus' story, because I think it, it, it explains so much of, of, of our reaction to Jesus. Zacchaeus, if you don't know who he was, he was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors back then were really hated people. Okay, a lot has changed since then, but back then they were really hated, if you can believe it or not. No, but there's a reason that they were, they, were, they, were, they were really hated is because, A, tax collectors were Jews, but they worked for Rome, and they took the money from their own people and gave it to Rome, so they were seen as traitors to their country. They were, they were traitors, and they were thieves. Like, if you owed 40% taxes, the tax collectors would say, you owe 50% taxes, and they would keep 10% for themselves. And they had the authority to do this from Rome. They were very hated people. And Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' town one day, and Zacchaeus wants to see him. And there are thousands of people following Jesus. Jesus was the first, like, rock star preacher, right? He was, like, the first rock star preacher. Everywhere he went, hundreds and thousands of people would just gather around him, waiting to see something. So Zacchaeus is no different. So he hopes to see Jesus. He climbs up in a tree, and lo and behold, Jesus walks right up to him. And says, Zacchaeus, go home, get dinner ready. We're going to hang at your crib tonight. And Zacchaeus is like excited. He takes off running, and I'm sure he's probably thinking as he's running home, like, of course you are. I have the nicest house in town. But everybody else is like ticked off. Like, what do you mean you're going to go hang out with him? Like, are you in his pocket? Like, what, what's going on, Jesus? Do you know he's a tax collector? Do you know he's a traitor? And the way back then it worked is like when you hosted one person to your house, you hosted like everybody to your house. So all these people end up showing up to Zacchaeus' house. They all hate him. 
And Jesus has dinner with Zacchaeus and all these other religious leaders. And they're having this conversation throughout dinner. And Jesus is really just talking with the religious, leader at, religious leaders at this dinner. That's all we really get to read about. But then at the end of this dinner, Zacchaeus stands up and he makes this declaration. He says, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. And if I have stolen anything from anybody, I'm going to repay it four times the amount. Do you understand? Zacchaeus just claimed he's going to give away a fortune. He's going to, like, change tax brackets down one. And from what we read, Jesus doesn't ask Zacchaeus to do any of this. He doesn't say, hey, you want to follow me? Give half of your own to the poor. Now, he has said that in other places, but we don't read that here. And, you know, pay back four times the amount. No, what happens is Zacchaeus experiences Jesus both imminent and transcendent. He experiences him both imminent and transcendent. He experiences Jesus receiving Zacchaeus, who he is. He doesn't have to do anything to make himself better. Right there on the spot, I receive you. And yet, I'm not going to ask you to stay the same person, that there's a calling on your life. There's a calling into something so much better, that there's a transcendence to Jesus. And when, when Zacchaeus interacts with Jesus, it changes him. And the reality is, when all of us, any of us, interact with Jesus, it changes us. It may push us further away from Jesus. It might pull us closer into him, but you cannot have an interaction with Jesus and stay the same because he is fully both with us and above us. And you see, it changes everything in him. And see, this, this is what it is. Zacchaeus experiences both grace and holiness from Jesus. Grace and holiness. You see, grace and holiness is Jesus among us and above us. Grace and holiness equals among us and above us. We have to have both. I think too often we really love Jesus with us, but that fact that he's above us, like, wait, you're at, you mean that Jesus is wanting to take stuff away from me? Ask me to follow a whole bunch of rules so I can have a relationship with him? Is that what it's about? No. It's not about the rules at all. Stop thinking about it in those terms. See, above us is a call to holiness. Above us means a call to righteousness. Above us means a call to something better. It's not righteousness just for the sake of righteousness. It's because where you're at is a pretty terrible place. Like, if, if I'm going to live my life and make it all about me, just do you, right? You do you, I'll do me. You don't want that. I could be a terrible person. Right? When, when my selfishness kicks in and my mind and my thoughts start swirling about myself and about me, I'm going to make it about me. And you don't want me to be me at that point. I don't want me to be me. Right? But there's something about when we seek righteousness, it's not about God trying to take things out of our hands. It's about him trying to give us something. But we got our hands full of just this garbage we got to give it up, and he wants to give us like a calling in our life and a purpose that he's made us for. He wants to take us and pull us up out of Egypt, out of slavery, and set us free into his promises. And that is what a pursuit of righteousness is. And we can't pursue that if we're just going to continue to be slaves in Egypt. And this is why God is telling Moses, tell the people, get ready. I'm going to call them out into something so much better. And that is what pursuit of righteousness is. It's not about just doing a bunch of rules and, 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 and making sure that we're, you know, minding our P's and Q's in front of God. That's not it at all. But so often that's the way we see it. 
That's the way we see righteousness if God is not with us and he's just above us. Or we don't even see a pursuit of righteousness. Oh, he just wants me to be me if he's not above us and he's just with us. This is so very important. I love the way Matt Chandler describes this. He says, look, we want to strive for holiness while resting in grace. Strive for holiness while resting in his grace. That we're not going to be holy on this side of eternity, but we're going to strive for it and we're going to make steps and movements towards it. And as we do, what it does, it frees us more. It doesn't make us, we're not, we're not in search of self-righteousness, we're in search of righteousness. It's not about us just doing it, but allowing God to be with us in this process and in this journey. You see, when we don't see God above us, holy, outside of our definition, he becomes common and small and fits inside our boxes. We end up no longer having a holy fear of God, but become more concerned with our personal rights instead of our personal righteousness. See, we can't put definitions on God. We can't try to define him. We have to allow him to define himself. But when we make him small and fit inside a box that I'm comfortable with, really we start pursuing our own rights instead of our own righteousness. And it becomes like, well, how, how does God make me feel better? It's all about me. Like, I don't think God would ever ask me to do this. That would be uncomfortable. No, but it's about pursuing righteousness. We don't want to cheapen the grace of God by just thinking he's going to sweep it, our sins under the rug. I love this quote by Bonhoeffer. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's so convicting. And just hear this this morning. Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching forgiveness without repentance, without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, a grace without the cross, a grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. And that's what you get when you do not see God imminent, and transcendent above us. And so really, as we wrap up today, the question is just this. Who is God? How do you see God? How do you define God? Christians in the room, those who, who follow this God and claim to follow this God and try to follow this God, how, how, who do you claim he is? Do you see him more as a God who's transcendent, not really imminent, or a God who's imminent but not really transcendent? Like, he's just with me. I tell you, it affects the way you live your life. Who do you see God is? Those who don't know God, don't, haven't said yes to Jesus, don't, don't know this God that we're talking about, you have had a picture and an image of God in your mind. If you're watching online, maybe you're going to see this two years from right now. But you're, you're, you're left with a question, who is God? And maybe you've seen God as one or the other, one that you don't need or one that you don't want. But did you know that he's actually a God who wants to be with you and pull you up out of the slavery that you're in? And so who is God to you? We have to wrestle with that now. So we have some action steps I want to invite you to grab. I would really encourage you to fill these out. Please fill these out. Because I think it's important that we really do something with what we hear. That we really do something with what we're learning and not just go, oh, that was really good, and then go on to Monday and nothing changes. And this is a way to at least maybe help yourself stay accountable. 
And we have some, some action steps today. And, and these are the action steps. The first one is <clears throat> say yes to Jesus, the great I am. I love that. Maybe you have not said yes to Jesus, who is the great I am, because you've seen him as one or the other, and you just couldn't, couldn't get behind that. And that's okay if you couldn't get behind that. But now that you've learned, no, he is both, and he wants to have a relationship with you. Maybe today is your day just to say yes to Jesus. Number two is ask God to reveal his eminence and transcendence in your life, that you would literally just take some time out of your week to plan it, to put on your calendar, to sit down and just go, God, show me that you are both with me and above me. Help me experience that like Zacchaeus did in his life. The next one is take a step, uh, or I'm sorry, number three is have an honest conversation with somebody about your definition of God. Maybe you're realizing, wow, I was way on this camp, and I just need to talk to someone about this and, and kind of work and process this with, along with somebody. If you're in an outpost right now, take some time, have this conversation. As soon as we're done, start talking about who has God been to you. And finally, number four is take a step of obedience and get baptized next week. If you've said yes to Jesus, you have an opportunity to get baptized. Next week, we're having baptisms here, live, in person. If you're in an outpost, we want to invite you to come down. Or if you're in an outpost and you can't be here, we'll come to you. Like, we want to do baptisms in your place, because that would be totally awesome. But baptism is a step of obedience. It's a step of obedience, and it's acknowledging God is above us. And so I'm going to walk in that obedience Church, again, last question, last time. Who is God? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you don't leave us in our questions, but you allow us to wrestle through them, but you speak to us too. You are not a God who is far off, cold, distant, just watching life unfold. But God, you are with us. You are with us in our troubles. You're with us when it's hard. You're with us when we're in pain, you're with us when we're struggling in our minds to even comprehend who you are. But God, that you also call us to something greater. You call us to righteousness. God, you call us out of our slavery, out of Egypt, into a promised place, a promised land. God, that you have set up for us. Your kingdom of God is here and it is coming, but it is a kingdom of righteousness. And God, you call us into that righteousness. God, I pray that we would wrestle with that today, that that would be on our mind and our hearts, that that would be something that we would wrestle with, that we would see you as above us, but we would also recognize that you are with us. God, if there are people wrestling with that decision for the first time today, I pray that you'd meet them right where they're at and that they would call on you, just like Moses did. Who who is this God? And that you'd be right there to answer them right where they're at, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you are I am. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for watching this message from ACF Church. Uh, We hope it's encouraged you and challenged you to be more like Jesus and to walk with him in a closer and more profound way. If you'd like to give to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so at the link on the screen or at acfak.org. We love you and we'll see you next week.